with me to Colossians chapter 2, where we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 5. And as you're turning there to Colossians chapter 2, I have the distinct privilege of letting you know that our brother and sister Neil and Liz Elms welcomed their little daughter Haddon Joy to the world at 9.10 a.m. this morning. And mom and daughter are doing well, and we are looking forward to meeting her. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. We're entering the second chapter of Paul's letter, and as you'll hear this morning as we read, uh, it's here in chapter 2 that Paul begins to finally speak very specifically about how the supremacy of Christ applies to the situation in the Colossian church. Can you guys hear me? You can hear me okay? All right, good. So Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And you can follow along with me as we read now from uh, God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ." Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Would you pray with me now as we ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His word. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to know that in Christ Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And they're not hidden so that we might miss them. They're hidden so that they might be revealed in the gospel. We thank you, Father, that you have indeed opened our eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And, and while the glory of Christ, Father, is, is unfathomable to us, that we will never reach the bottom of it, we do ask God today that you would perhaps even peel back just another layer, an- remove just a bit more of the fog that so often clouds our minds, and help us to see even just a bit more clearly who Jesus is and what He has done. Help us to see Him, Father, because we know that in seeing Him by faith, We are transformed into His likeness. We ask this, God, knowing that You hear us because Jesus sits at Your right hand. Lord, please keep me from error and make Your Word very plain and clear and sharp and powerful. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, our, our passage this morning is both similar and surprising. When I read this text, I think this is similar and this is a bit surprising. You may have noticed as we read, but there's not a whole lot that is new in this paragraph, is there? There's not a whole lot that's new. In fact, you could say verse 3, which is the heart of the passage, is essentially a summary of all Paul has taught so far. Verse 3 is essentially a summary. Who is Jesus Christ? Verse 3, He is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Friends, if knowing God is a priceless treasure, then Christ is the chest in which that treasure is contained. It's striking how Paul is repeatedly coming back to this same theme over and over. 
Paragraph after paragraph, he keeps coming back to this same theme. Do you need wisdom to navigate life in God's world? Then look to Christ, Paul says, who is the very wisdom of God. Do you seek to know the deep things of God? Then go to Christ, Paul says, who reveals God in such a way that the Holy One of Heaven becomes the Father of those who believe in Jesus Christ. Do you long for your life with God to be richer and fuller and deeper? Then seek to know Christ, Paul says, whose glory is like a well of crystal clear water that never runs dry and always satisfies the soul. Friends, those truths are profound. They're glorious even. And yet in the context of Colossians, they're not new. Paul has spent the entire first chapter proclaiming these wonderful truths. Verse 3 is a summary. It's even a high point, you could say, of all that Paul has already said. And that makes this passage very similar to what we've studied so far. And yet in the midst of this similarity, there is something surprising. It's here, all the way in chapter 2, that Paul finally addresses the problem in the Colossian church. Notice verse 4 again. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Friends, that's the very first hint that we have that there is something troubling this church. This is the very first time that we hear there are enemies of the gospel seeking to deceive the Colossians. Now, for such a serious problem, you would think that Paul would have started the letter with this truth. You would think that he would have started the letter with his warning. But that's not what we've seen, is it? Instead, Paul started the letter with what? With doctrine. With the riches of Jesus Christ. How He is supreme and glorious and therefore sufficient for His people. And it's only now, after an entire chapter of teaching, after an an, an entire chapter of doctrine, it's only now that Paul finally addresses the problem. And that delay, you might say, is somewhat surprising. But it's here, friends, at the intersection of similar and surprising that we find Paul's point for this text. According to Paul, what is of utmost importance in the life of the church is the knowledge of Jesus Christ. What is of utmost importance for the life of the church is the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Listen, this is where God's Word is going to challenge us a bit this morning. When we think of the knowledge of Christ, we tend to think of mere propositional statements. We tend to reduce doctrine to facts that can be listed out in neat, logical order. And don't get me wrong, doctrine is propositional. There are facts about Jesus Christ that constitute who He is. But for Paul... The knowledge of Christ is never merely propositional. It's never merely facts. For Paul, the knowledge of Christ is active. The the knowledge of Christ is life-giving. The knowledge of Jesus Christ is doing something in the gathering of God's people. That's why Paul began the letter with doctrine. And that's why he's waited until chapter 2 to start warning them about the false teachers. It's not that Paul is unconcerned. It's not that he thinks the false teachers are really not that big of a a big deal. It's that Paul is utterly convinced that the knowledge of Christ is what they need. The knowledge of Christ is sufficient 
to mature them and protect them and grow them in the faith. Again, friends, I know we've seen much of this already in our study of this book, and we're going to keep seeing it, but there is a challenge to us in this passage that we need to not overlook. The church in our day is constantly besieged with messages that claim some new spiritual insight or some new spiritual technique. You've got to learn this new way to meditate. It will really unlock how you pray. You've got to understand yourself better. It will finally unlock spiritual growth. You've got to read this book or go to this conference or listen to this message or fill in the blank. We're constantly besieged with messages telling us, you don't have what you need, you better get it over here. And while I'm certainly not saying that those messages are necessarily coming from false teachers, I am saying that if we're not careful, the effect will be the same. In our quest to find what's new, we will miss what's necessary. The knowledge of Jesus Christ and a wholehearted dependence on knowing Christ Jesus. You will find it in almost every single one of Paul's letters when he gets to the high point of that pastoral application. What is he telling them to do? He's telling them to know Christ. Let us press on to know Him, Paul says. And that's the challenge. That's the challenge for the church today. It's the challenge for the church in every age. Do we believe, along with the apostles, that all we need for life and godliness is found in Jesus Christ? Do we believe that? Or are we looking, even unthinkingly, are we looking for something else, believing that we are missing out? That's the challenge. If you look at the details of the paragraph now, you'll notice that verse 3 is truly the heart of the text. This passage has a wonderful symmetry that highlights the glory of Christ. Verse 1 and verse 5 are essentially the same. They're talking about Paul's relationship to the Colossians. Verse 2 and verse 4 are essentially the same. They're giving you Paul's purpose for writing. And then what's left in the middle? Verse 3, which declares to us the glory of Christ. You see, the glory of Christ is the center of the Christian life. The knowledge of Jesus Christ is the center of the Christian life. Even the way the paragraph is put together is telling you, look to Christ. More specifically, Paul emphasizes this centrality by highlighting four effects, or we could say four ways the knowledge of Christ works in the life of the church. He's trying to highlight that centrality, and he does so with four effects of the knowledge of Christ. Let's consider them together. The first effect is found in verse 2. The knowledge of Christ encourages our hearts. The knowledge of Christ encourages our hearts. Again, we notice some similarity between our passage and what we studied last week. You may remember that chapter 1 ended with Paul describing his struggle In ministry for the gospel, chapter 1, verse 29, Paul toiled to see people reach maturity in Christ. Well, as chapter 2 begins, Paul specifies that his struggle in ministry is for the Colossians' sake. Notice again verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. It's true that Paul has not met the Colossians, but that doesn't change his relationship toward them. He ministers 
on their behalf. He struggles for them in prayer. He labors now in writing this letter. And Paul does that for the Laodiceans too, who lived uh, you know, a few miles up the road from the Colossians, about 10 miles. And he does it for all those who have not seen him face to face. Paul is struggling on behalf of these Christians. You see, while we tend to think of Paul as a trailblazing missionary, he was really a pastor at heart. Paul's concern was for the spiritual well-being of Christ's people. Friends, this will help you read Paul's letters in the right way. Yes, Paul wants to correct and and confront false teachers, but his primary concern is not to argue over doctrine. Paul's primary concern is to care for the people of God. He does not argue and debate for argument's sake. Paul argues for people's sake. There's a difference. Paul's eye is always on the spiritual well-being of specific Christians. Specific people that he knows and loves and cares for. Let this be a reminder to us, friends, that the true purpose of doctrine, even doctrinal dispute... The true purpose of doctrine is always to care for the people of God to the glory of God. If that's not why you care about doctrine, then you don't understand what that doctrine is. It's for the good of God's people. That's the reason why we're called to contend for the truth. It's not because we want to be right. It's not because we want other people to be wrong. It's because like Paul, we want people to reach the heavenly city. We want to care for people's souls. Paul struggles for these believers because he's a pastor at heart. That's what he does. Then in verse 2, Paul gives you the purpose of his struggle. Why does he labor for their sake? Well, notice what he says, verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged. You see then that encouragement is the purpose of Paul's struggle. Now, we need to understand that when Paul speaks of encouraging their hearts, he is not simply talking about the emotional state of the Colossians. That tends to be how we define the heart. The heart is the place where I feel things. The heart is the place of my emotions. But in the Bible, the heart is much more than our feelings. The heart is the command center of life. The heart is the seat of personality. What I desire, what I think, how I feel, how I act, all of that, according to the Bible, is connected to the heart. If you want to change someone's life, you got to get to their heart. So when Paul says his purpose is to encourage their hearts, he means much more than make them feel better. He means literally to lend them the courage that they need to do what God's called them to do. To strengthen them. To put some steel in their spine at the deepest part of their person. Now the question, of course, is where will this encouragement come from? If the heart is the seat of the person, what could possibly get down in there and encourage you? Well, the answer, friends, is what stands at the center of this passage. Verse 3, the truth that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The answer is what Paul has spent the entire first chapter teaching them. The unsurpassed glory and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Listen, Paul knows these believers are troubled. They've got false teachers telling them that they don't measure up. That they're going to miss out on salvation. Let's not minimize that, friends. Imagine being in the first generation of believers. Imagine everyone in here is a first generation Christian. 
And we have someone who shows up with apparent authority and tells us, you don't actually know God. You're not going to be saved. That would be troubling. That's what these Christians are going through. That would be a powerful source of discouragement, not to mention fear and uncertainty and a whole host of other trouble. And that's why Paul's strategy is so brilliantly simple. He knows at the end of the, at the, end of the day, the only antidote to such powerful discouragement is heart-strengthening truth that Jesus dwells in His people by faith. That's the only way to encourage them. The false teachers say, you don't really know God. So Paul responds and says, but Christ who is the fullness of God dwells in you. Of course you know God. The false teachers say, you've got to do these other things to be saved. But Paul says, in Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus has already saved His people. You see, that's why Paul keeps coming back to the same truth over and over because he knows the only remedy to this kind of discouragement is the truth that's connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. The life-giving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Again and again and again, Paul gives them Jesus. So if you're discouraged today, brothers and sisters, if your heart is heavy with trouble and with concern, I pray that you would take strength from the good news that Paul is reminding you of here in Colossians 2. Jesus Christ, the one whose name that you claim in faith, Jesus Christ is enough to sustain your faith. His wisdom is enough to guide you in whatever you face. His knowledge is enough to protect you from delusion. His grace is enough to cover your sin. His mercy is enough to meet today's trouble. His compassion is enough to weep with you in sorrow. His righteousness is enough to make you acceptable before God. His faithfulness is enough to meet your unfaithfulness. His strength is more than your weakness. His sovereignty is enough to hold life together. His patience is enough to listen to your prayer again and again and again. And His glory is enough to satisfy your soul. Jesus Christ is enough to sustain your faith. And by all means, I do not intend to sound trite this morning, but look to Him, brothers and sisters. Go to God's Word and read of Jesus' life and His glory. Go to the Scriptures and hear again how at the cross, as Jesus died, He satisfied the wrath of God for every sin that every believer would ever commit. And listen to me, if your discouragement is so deep that when you go to the Bible, you can't see those things as you read, then find a brother or sister and grab them by the arm and say, will you help me see what I can't see? Go to Christ. Friends, often our, this is hard. This is hard for me because I'm prone to discouragement. Often our discouragement is because we lose sight of who Jesus is. And we forget what He's done. So go to the Gospel, brothers and sisters. Go to the Gospel. And as Paul says here in Colossians 2, in Colossians 2 let the knowledge of Christ encourage your heart. Let Him encourage you. That's the first effect. Along with encouragement, Paul also tells us in verse 2 that the knowledge of Christ strengthens our unity. The knowledge of Christ strengthens our unity. Notice the next phrase, verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. It's a reference to unity. The Colossians already enjoy unity in their church. 
Remember chapter 1, Paul thanked God for the Colossians' faith in Christ Jesus and the love that they have for all the saints. So what Paul has in mind here in chapter 2 is that their unity would be strengthened. As we'll see later, whatever the false teachers were saying, it was divisive. In fact, their ideas seem to have an elitist attitude. Look down just briefly at verse 16 of chapter 2. I know we're jumping ahead, but just look at verse 16 down there where Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you. Right? That's, that's divisive, disunifying language. It's a warning to say, don't listen to elitist teaching. Don't let anybody pass judgment on you. And, and look, it's not hard to imagine how this worked. The false teachers claimed that their practices were spiritually superior to those who didn't follow them. And that claim of superiority, if not addressed, would then slowly tear the church apart. You would end up with factions. Again, this is not hard to think. You would end up with factions. You would have this one group of people who were quote-unquote superior to others, that they had attained a higher level, and then everyone else was down on the lower level. They were less than spiritual somehow. We don't have all the details as to how it played out, but it's not hard to put the pieces together. And that's why, it seems, Paul mentions unity. He, he knows where this could go. Division. And he's concerned for that, so he tries to strengthen their unity. Even so, we still have to ask, how does the knowledge of Christ strengthen unity? It's one thing to say that the knowledge of Christ encourages me as an individual. I can see how the gospel has personal applications to me. But how does the knowledge of Christ strengthen unity in a church as a whole? Well, friends, it's because the sufficiency of Christ destroys the roots of division. The sufficiency of Christ destroys the roots of division. Remember, visible disunity in a church is only a fruit. It's not actually the root problem. The root problem goes much deeper. It's things like manipulation, rivalry, envy, comparison, contention. If the ugly fruit of division is on display in a church, then you can be sure that those things are at the root. Manipulation, envy, rivalry, comparison, contention. But the sufficiency of Christ, friends, is like God's sharp spade that He uses to dig those roots out. Think about it. The sufficiency of Christ uproots manipulation. When I know that I have all I need in Jesus, I don't have to use people to get what I want. I have Christ, and therefore I don't lack anything. The sufficiency of Christ uproots comparison. When I know that I am complete in Christ, I don't have to compare myself to you. And I don't have to compete with you in order to be a Christian. The sufficiency of Christ uproots envy. When I believe that Jesus dwells in each one of us fully by faith, I'm not envious of your gifts and you're not envious of mine. Why? Because we both have Christ in full measure. What reason is there to be envious of? Do you see it, friends? That, that sharp spade of the gospel digs down into the soil of a church and it uproots the things that produce division. It tears them out. But here's the most amazing part. Here's the most amazing fruit of all. The knowledge of Christ not only uproots the ugly things, but it also plants new things. 
Namely, love for others that produces unity. When I understand who Christ is and how He provides all that I need for life, when I embrace all that Jesus is, I am free to do the most Christ-like thing I could ever do. Love you more than I love myself. The Gospel frees me. It frees me to put your interests ahead of my own. So instead of using you, I serve you. Instead of comparing myself to you, I encourage you. Instead of envying you, I minister to you, believing that your joy is actually my joy. And your sorrows are my sorrows. And your gifts are for my good. And my gifts are for your good. Where does that kind of love come from? It comes from the knowledge of Christ. The knowledge of Christ. Knowing who He is and what He's done. It tears out envy and it replaces it with love. That kind of love is the fruit of the Gospel. That's what I'm trying to get us to see. The knowledge of Christ brings this kind of fruit. Look, there is nothing more practically helpful for the Christian life than believing what is true about Jesus. Believe the Gospel and your life will change. Is it going to change overnight? No. But it will change because of who Christ is. You show me a church that is racked with strife and division and I'll show you a church that has too low a view of the Gospel. But you show me a church that's full of people loving one another and I'll show you a church that knows who Jesus is. Do you see it? The knowledge of Christ, the knowledge of Christ in the Gospel strengthens our unity for it binds our hearts together in love. That's the second effect. The third effect, again, comes from verse 2. The knowledge of Christ fortifies our minds. The knowledge of Christ fortifies our minds. Notice the final line of verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, here it comes, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Now we know from verse 4 that Paul is concerned the Colossians not be deluded. He's concerned that they not be deceived. The false teachers have plausible arguments, Paul says. That means they sound persuasive. This is really important, friends. Error does not look dangerous on the surface. Error often looks plausible. It sounds persuasive. I mean, just think about the very first instance of false doctrine in the Bible. The very first instance of false doctrine, Genesis chapter 3, the serpent in the Garden of Eden. The serpent's argument sounded good. It sounded like life. The serpent did not slither up to Adam and Eve and say, hey, you should eat this fruit because it will ruin your life and bring spiritual death and plunge the entire human race into utter misery. That's not what he said. He said, you'll be like God because you will know everything that God knows. That sounds good. That sounds plausible to me. If I have the knowledge of God, then am I not God? It sounds reasonable. And so it continues to this day. False doctrine, error, false teachers, they don't come to you looking on the surface dangerous. They come with plausible arguments. They come with persuasive speech from the Colossians down to us. Paul warns us against these plausible arguments. 
But here in verse 2, the focus is not on the arguments yet. We're going to get to that later in chapter 2. The focus right now is on the provision against those arguments. And that provision, Paul says, is the full assurance of understanding. Please note that word understanding, friends. We said earlier in the sermon that in, about this about encouragement, but it bears repeating here. Paul is not simply concerned with how the Colossians feel. He is not trying to comfort their emotions. No, Paul is trying to fortify their minds. He aims to strengthen their understanding so that they will think rightly and then live rightly. Specifically, the Paul, Paul wants the Colossians to have full assurance. You see it there in verse 2, full assurance. The idea is certainty or conviction. And it comes from knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. When those plausible arguments attempt to creep in, the Colossians can say with certainty that they already understand the mystery of God. They can say with conviction that they already know God. Why can they have certainty? Why can they have conviction? Because they know Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's Paul's point. You see, the knowledge of Christ is active. It's life-giving. It's doing something. It's fortifying the minds of God's people. Friends, we need to recognize that these kinds of plausible arguments are not limited to the first century. They're not limited to the Colossian church. We live in a world today that is full of plausible-sounding, persuasive ideas. And those ideas are not neutral. There is actually no neutrality when it comes to ideas and human thinking. Ideas have consequences. Ideas lead somewhere. And as Paul warned his disciple Timothy, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but they will turn away from listening to the truth and they will wander off into myths. Friends, that time is now. That time has been with us since the birth of the church. And it will be with us until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why it is vital that we know the truth of Christ. That's why it's vital that we know Scripture. That we know what we believe and teach as a church. Are you growing in the knowledge of God, friends? Are you growing in knowing God from His Word? And here's the key. It's not enough just to know it or hear it once. I had a guy tell me, yeah, I read the Bible once. Well, that's great. That's like saying you ate once. Shouldn't you eat again? It's not enough to know it once. You have to keep knowing it. Keep studying it. Keep pursuing the truth of God's Word. I've been teaching the book of Colossians in a four-hour class for the last seven years. Do you know how much I'm learning studying for this sermon series? A ton. There's always more to see. There's always more to learn. you got to keep knowing it. As Christians, our reflex should be that when we hear something, we ask ourselves, what does Scripture say about that? Look, I know that sounds passe in 2019 to say, what does the Bible say about that? But that's what Christians do. It's who we are. We're people of the book. Know God's Word. Know Christ. I'm not saying that literally every topic is covered in the Bible, but I am saying that God's Word is sufficient for life and godliness. And, and listen, friends, do you know where this full assurance of understanding leads? Do you know what happens when you grow in the knowledge of God? Where does that lead? It doesn't lead to superiority or smugness. No, it leads to humility and faithfulness. It leads to maturity in Christ. It leads to love for neighbor and obedience to God's Word leads to being salt and light in the midst of a dark world. You see, it's not just about being right. It's about being faithful, maturing in Christ. 
That's why we seek to grow in the knowledge of Christ, so that our minds are fortified with conviction that overflows in humble faithfulness. Encouragement, unity, assurance. The final effect comes in verse 5, when Paul says the knowledge of Christ confirms our faith. The knowledge of Christ confirms our faith. Notice again what Paul writes, verse 5. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul has never visited this church, but he stands with the Colossians in the fight of faith. He prays for them. He writes to them. He sends co-workers to them. You see, he's with them in the spirit. I think that's what that phrase means. I don't think he means anything mystical. I'm with you. Sending you letters and praying for you. I'm giving you friends. I'm with you. And through that partnership, Paul has been encouraged to hear of their firmness of faith. This is a key point, friends. The Colossians have not turned from the gospel. Yes, the false teachers are a threat. And yes, the Colossians may be growing weary. But they are standing firm. So as one commentator has said, I found this really helpful. The letter to Colossians is not like an antibiotic. It's like a vaccination. He's not trying to cure an infection He's trying to prevent one from setting in. You see it? They haven't turned away from Christ. They trust in Christ. And Paul wants them to keep standing firm. He has, he's heard about them. He's encouraged. And so, verse 5, Paul commends them for their faith. And yet, at the same time, Paul's commendation is also an exhortation. Notice in verse 5 how Paul clearly highlights the centrality of Christ. He rejoices to see the firmness of their faith in Christ. You see, that little phrase, in Christ, is not a throwaway statement. It's actually the key to the entire verse. What's most remarkable about the Colossians is not their faith, per se, but the object of their faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why have the Colossians stood firm? Because they've remained rooted in Christ. They've held fast to the Lord Jesus. Friends, this is one of the paradoxes of faith While we trust in Christ, it is actually Christ who holds us firm in the faith. Christ is the anchor that gives faith its firmness. The more I see Him and know Him and trust Him, the deeper my faith becomes. The stronger my faith grows. Now, am I the one trusting in Christ? Yes. I am exercising my will to believe. I am trusting in Christ. But am I the one who's holding me firm? Am I the one who's anchoring my faith? No, it's actually the Lord Jesus held out to me in the gospel. I've said this before, friends, but I'll say it again here in this passage. Faith takes strength not from itself, but from the one in whom it rests. Faith takes strength from its object, not the subject who is giving it. So please catch what this means. Please catch what this means. Being strong in the faith is not something that wells up from inside of you. Being strong in the faith is not pulling yourself up by your own Christian bootstraps. Being strong in the faith comes from knowing and beholding the Lord Jesus Christ. A Christian with strong faith is a Christian who deeply knows Christ. You don't make yourself strong. You don't hold your own faith firm. Christ holds it. And that means on those days when your faith is weak, which it will be, if if you have days where your faith is weak, that's called being a Christian. 
On those days when your faith is weak, what do you need to do? You need to go to the Bible and read about Jesus Christ. And I do mean literally, go to the Bible and read about Jesus Christ. Read about who he is and what he's done. And ask him, hold me firm. Hold me firm in the faith. You can't make faith stronger by yourself. You've got to go to the anchor and have him hold you firm to the end. I've really only had one application the entire sermon. And I'm going to say it here again at the end. Jesus Christ is a solid foundation for your faith and your trust. He is a solid foundation for your life. He is the unmoving, unchanging, ever-present assurance that God has redeemed His people from sin and from death and from hell. All the treasures of God are found in Christ. And if you belong to Christ today by faith, then He dwells in you so that all of God's riches are your riches in Christ. God has given you all that He is in His Son. Those who belong to Christ lack nothing before the Father. Those who belong to Christ lack nothing for life in God's world. Those who belong to Christ can stand firm against the plausible schemes of this world and against the deceitful accusations of the devil. Look to Christ, brothers and sisters. Look to Christ and find that His gospel is enough. It's more than enough to confirm you in your faith. I know we're in Colossians chapter 2, but it seems to me that Paul's words from chapter 11 of his epistle to the Romans are a fitting place to conclude. The language is actually the same between Colossians 2 and Romans 11. Paul says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways. Indeed, God's ways are unfathomably rich. And those riches are revealed to you and given to you in Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.